I think of my family every day of my life. I think of Kara every day. I wear one of her old shirts. That was the voice of Paul Tedesco. And I had the opportunity to meet Mr. Tedesco in his living room in Western Massachusetts. I barely made it there that day. It was one of those rainstorms, almost like a biblical proportion, flash floods throughout my entire trip from New Haven, Connecticut. And luckily I was able to borrow a car from actually my oldest friend on the planet. Her mom and my mom were ER nurses together back in Lawrence, uh, Kansas, where I'm from. And Renee is a professor now at Yale and is married to one of my favorite people. And I got to hang out with them and their daughter. And it was really a nurturing environment that I was coming from. And I was concerned if I was going to be able to ride the motorcycle up there because of these flash flood warnings. And they were like, just take our car. And, and it really made a huge difference because when I pulled in to the Tedesco home, I was not only in a better mindset to be able to meet, but I was also felt like I didn't have to worry about where I was going immediately after the interview, which for all of the other interviews and all 90 days that I was on the road straight, after each day I was constantly concerned about where I was going next. And there was something freeing about not being worried about time or the logistics. And so once I was inside the living room of the Tedesco household, you know, I met Paul and he wanted to have his daughter and his wife in the room during the interview and so you might hear some of their voices in the background and the way I got to meet Paul is actually through his daughter Sarah Tedesco and we'll get more into the connection there at the end of the interview but just to give you a little bit of context Mr. Tedesco was 85 years old when I recorded him in this interview and he's a retired history professor and so he has a great passion for history and so the whole interview which was a couple hours long he would go off these really interesting tangents about the history of the home the history of his community the history of his father coming from Italy and I could tell that really through the lens of Mr. Tedesco everything kind of had a historical element to it and he would interweave some of that in his understanding of his father's life and also his father's death which was really important for the conversation as soon as I mic'd him up he began telling the story of how his father had died. The story had been in the, the local papers, the state papers, and uh, all over the United States. The chief of police tracked me down at Harvard and asked if I would come uh, to identify some things. We walked up from the rear and the, there was a hose coming off the exhaust. He opened that door, I can still see it couldn't get it all out of the car. So I'm looking at part of my father's remains. That was really a, uh, a hair-raising thing. I'm not th that emotional usually, and I certainly has, hadn't got emotional about uh, what, what had taken place. Uh, my father had done what I came to uh, view the, uh, the, the normal of a suicide structure in which that he had left a note for my mother and I. I really didn't um, muddle over what, what dad, my father did. My, over, my over time, I, I would establish for myself something which I saw, saw happening uh, prior to his uh, making that uh, decision. And so let me just stop and go back and 
look at him because uh, he's the one that that uh, took that action. My father was uh, came to this country when he was three, three years old from the Abruzzi in, in Middle Italy. The family, uh, there were three children and there would be three children born in the United States. That family would set up in West Newton uh, where one brother and some cousins of my grandfather uh, had already established. They were all farmers. My grandfather, friendly fellow, and I would, he would allow me to work with him too. I would pluck carrots and chew them off the line. Uh, carrots with good dirt, by the way, isn't bad. So I got to know him quite a bit. Uh, I had my first drink of grappa. Maybe I was five, I think, something like that. We'd go down in the cellar and he'd check the wine and he'd give me a little glass and everything in the world would be correct according to him. So, but my father had come to this country uh, just coming to America. He wanted to become an American. He worked very hard for his father on the farm and also to get an education. And if you had known him early on in and then met him after he graduated from high school, you would have thought he was an American completely. His language was absolutely right on target, tonally. In other words, you never thought he came from Italy. Viewing him, you might very well think this fellow did. He wanted a college education. And he went to his father and he asked him to loan him money uh, to uh, go to Harvard. My grandfather, being typically old world, went trudging down to St. Bernard's Church and went into the confessional and asked the priest what he should do. And of course the priest told him, don't, don't, don't do that. And so he went back and told my father, I can't, I'm not, not going to give you the money. So my father said, well, I'm going to tell you I'm going to leave the Catholic Church. So instead of just caving in, he uh, got himself into Wentworth Institute, which is basically trains in the arts and skills. So he took a degree in uh, design and in pattern making and turned himself into a very good shoe designer. But he also became a very good manager. In, in uh, April of 1917, he walked into the recruiting office in Park Square, Boston, and enlisted in the Army. Didn't have to, but he did. And my mother's shriek was, why? I mean, we're going to get married. <laughs> so he had to delay that uh, till he came back. And he came back in 1920, I believe, because he was in the Army of Occupation in the Ruhr. This was the war to end wars, remember. Uh, and what else was brewing, of course, was the Depression. Uh, he, he did save his money, but he also had to, in effect, help the family. Uh, that's the the eldest son. So at, at the same time that this came, he decided to go into business. So he hawked his insurance. Never do that. But he did it without my mother knowing. And um, he started up a factory in Haverhill, Massachusetts. And it was something that he and his oldest brother had been talking about when he was in the army and uh, within a year and a half, he was broke. That's when things began to bedevil him. 
because it was tough as hell to get a job. Everybody's looking for a job. He has a wife and three children. He went in and out of bankruptcy. My mother, I don't think, ever forgave him. I, I feel strongly that the Depression killed him. I think all of that, in one sense, killed him, and in the other sense, kept him going for a while. And then, then by 1947, uh, 48, the war is over. And after losing a good contract and living well, I mean, we, we took dives, for instance, in terms of where we living. We would could be living in Garden City, Long Island one time. And he said a business down downtown New Manhattan or someplace, or we're back up. My my mother, in her married life, I think she she told us once that she had moved uh, 21 times. I've never had a difficulty handling my father's death, nor had a difficulty uh, discussing it with people. In effect. I think my mother's and my response, totally anyways, would have been, it wasn't on the top of our, our thinking cap. We didn't know the ease to which maybe we could find uh, somebody who handled issues of depression. I never had a discussion uh, prior to that in terms of his, what had been happening to him. I mean, he would have probably fended me off. I had no avenues to learn something to how to handle this. Really. And mother and I, one thing we would always have a conversation would be that we would ask ourselves, did we ever see anything happen directly that would tell us that this man is capable of doing harm to himself and, without knowing it, harm to the rest of us? My mother took such a heating from the rest of that family, I could have bashed all of them. There was a family friend who had been at a large uh, funeral company, and uh, when he had, he had called up my mother and said that they would take care of everything. Well, that was a charming funeral because almost when we walked through the door, he gave her a bill. So, so much for friends. I mean, it was so, so gross. Did you, when people would ask, you know, where's your father later in life, you said you kind of just set it aside. Would you mention how he died? No. Well, it wasn't their business. And what if someone pressed? I'd walk away. It wasn't their business either. Has your understanding of your father's death changed over time? No, no. With a, with a man who's... who's Belief and hopes of society was so high, would be chewed up by some negativity that should never happen. But um, you know, I mean, I, I I took him with all good and bad. I mean, a man could be stupid, he could be positive, uh, gracious, all of those things, and still do dumb things. But I can sympathize. I've never been. Uh, depressed or anything like that. I mean, I always when you go in the hospital, they ask you, "Have you been depressed?" I mean, I've been been I've been scared. I've been uh, and all sorts of other things, but not depressed. But I still loved him. At the moment of it happening, I would have never expected it at all. Things were hard and so on, but uh, in that sense, I don't know what kicked him over the over the lip then.
and that my my response is maybe not true, but I feel comfortable with it that he was just simply having difficulty handling everything. If you could go back in time and give yourself advice as a young man at 20, is there anything that you'd want to say about how to navigate this challenge of losing your father? That's a hard one. I live in a society where the word depression is a fearful word. Yeah. Do you recall a time in which, you know, you said you kind of set the loss of your father aside. Do you recall a time in which it came back, unsurprised you? Where? Tell me about that. Tell me about when it came back. When her daughter did the same thing, except with a nine millimeter. Can you tell me more about it? I don't know any more than that. That's all I need to know. And who's her daughter? Who are you referring to? The, for the tape dad. Oh. Yeah. That's uh, Sarah Tedesco's daughter, Katrina. Your granddaughter. My granddaughter, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everything going her way, too. Bright. And I'm damn sure that if, if this hadn't happened, she'd have, she'd have got herself to law school or wherever she wanted to go on her skills alone. She's just a terrific kid. And it's too often it's terrific kids that do things stupid. So, but I don't, I don't mean to not mark that as stupid per se, but the fact of the matter is the society is stupid for allow these things happen or, or the growth structure around these things to get to the point of uh, some, some 19 or 20 year old sticking it in their mouth and pulling the trigger. And Mr. Tedesco's daughter, Sarah, who was in the room, whose voice you hear, she's the one who reached out to me and invited me to interview her father. And Kara, who Paul Tedesco references there, was his granddaughter, Katrina or Kara Taggett. She took her own life in 2008. And Sarah Tedesco was Kara's mom. And once we were done with the interview, I learned more about the Katrina Taggett Memorial Foundation, which is the foundation that the family set up after Paul's granddaughter and Sarah's daughter took her own life in 2008. To learn more about the foundation, you can visit it at katrinataggett.org. That's Katrina, T-A-G-G-E-T, dot org. And with Mr. Tedesco, seeing that he lost his father 65 years ago, I was really intrigued to speak more with Mr. Tedesco about how times have changed not only for him, which you hear, he really clearly just continued to speak about in the interview of how he just pushed it aside. He pushed his father's death aside. He didn't focus on it. He didn't muddle on it in his words. But in those 65 years since his father died, so many advances have been made in psychology, neuropsychology, uh, various healthcare, mental health care treatments, and also just you know society's understanding of mental health and how we can support our loved ones and I guess the things that I was reflecting on when I got back in the car um, after saying thanks to the Tedesco family who were so generous with me and and I'm so grateful that Sarah not only connected us but also for her work with the foundation 
And it got me thinking, you know, Mr. Tedesco was really speaking around not just depression, like mental health depression, but he was also speaking around economic depression that killed his dad and his focus on society and, and the challenge of having a society that isn't supporting its citizens and how that exacerbates problems. And as Mr. Tedesco closed the conversation in the interview around the sickness in society and, and how is it that his granddaughter could take her own life in addition to his own father and in the span of 65 years, what are the connections with society? And, and that's what I really got a sense that Mr. Tedesco as a historian was really trying to get at. It wasn't just that he was saying depression, mental health depression is what took his father's life or why his father took his own life. But it was society's depression, the economic depression, exacerbated his father's mental health challenges and issues. And the correlation with his father and his granddaughter and their respective suicides left me thinking a lot about the role of society as I was going back to New Haven. And I started you know, thinking about my next interview, and it was going to be with a man... Um, who is actually a grief counselor, someone who more or less, I guess, specializes in supporting others who have lost loved ones to suicide, and he lost his father. And his name's Franklin Cook, and I just want to give you a taste of what you're going to hear in the next interview. Here's Franklin. Suicide is our culture's canary in the cage. Think of it like this. We've created a society where it is logical, natural, explainable that 38,000 people kill themselves a year. What is it about that society that we've created to cause that to happen? 